0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's
1: coming up to four o'clock and it is time now for Tuesday Home Time. Thanks to Chris for great voices. Today, the true story about what's happening in Venezuela... Be speaking with Fred Fuentes. Part three of talks on the 1917 Russian Revolution with our good friend Chris Gaffney. And, of course, it's the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. The UN Human Rights Council meeting on Sri Lanka. A report back from Dr. Brian Ratna. Impounding of a ship in South Africa. It's holding Western Saharan phosphate rock, which... The people of Western Sahara say is being illegally exported by Morocco. I'll be speaking to Kate Lewis to find out what's likely to be happening there. And opposition to the development of the toxic site at Faulkner, the former New Farm property in McRide Street, Faulkner. And I'll be speaking to one of the residents, Brian Snowden, about the meeting which is going to happen this Thursday evening. But first... Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had a week.
2: A week, Jan, listener, when big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull was last seen twiddling his thumbs in New York, using those thumbs to thumb mindlessly through boring waiting room magazines and repeatedly looking at his watch. While far away in Washington, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, was whooping it up, celebrating his success at attacking insurance companies by pouring trillions into their coffers as the cost of insuring the poor, to whom he has devoted his presidency, are denied health care, for Donald knows health care is very, very expensive and ...must be earned, and if the unemployed, the homeless, the working poor... ...don't earn enough, then it's win-win. Under my best ever in the history of the world policy, good, good... ...the poor will be put out of their suffering sooner. This is a compassionate policy. Very good. Very good. Ah, uh, Mr. Supremo, you're, you're supposed to be meeting that true blue guy in New York... ...to celebrate a bit of train killing. A true blue Aussie, uh, where's that again? Uh, uh, so- somewhere near on the way, I think, to uh, North Korea, isn't it? Because I remember I sent that very great, very good armada there. Uh, are they a threat? He's the guy in the phone call. God, not him again. Talk about spoiling a great day. And with that, they whipped out the blank. Is a true friend of the USR with whom we have a very special relationship. Idiot board and some distracted, like he posted North Korea where he should have posted True Blue Aussie. Not that we're suggesting idiot board is any reflection on Donald. Malcolm had flown halfway round the world to be kept twiddling his thumbs in New York, and would fly halfway round the world back to where he came from as soon as the meeting of minds very short, and getting shorter by the minute meeting of minds was over, because he had to get back to finalise the budget, whose main objective is not wasting money. On which we mentioned last week, big economic guru scuttled them more Lash Sun's good debt, created by handing the public purse to the super-efficiency of the private sector, whose major efficiency seems to be getting its hand on the public purse. Mentioned scuttle them's Good debt would resolve his deficit-stroke surplus problem by not being a debt at all. Fiscal is yet a man and that the long-haired commie-greenie brigade have this silly notion that a surplus is no more than taxes raised not spent on the services for which they were raised. Well, this week, our very own socialist state big economic guru, Tim Police the Bosses, announced a surplus and headed off next day to enjoy a lunch and explain he's legit a man with the The natural constituency of a true blue um, socialist economic guru. The big end of town, sundry chambers of profits, assuring them socialism, Tim and Big Supremo, who, who. Well, thanks to Lord Rupert of Wapping, we know who, who, who is the pejorative. Dan. Socialism Tim and Hoo-Hoo style was no threat to their economic and policy hegemony. And silly fools, they believed him, when it's clear his budget is all about destroying capitalism and creating a socialist utopia. We looked forward to seeing Tim and Hoo-Hoo leading the May Day March. Although perhaps it's best they didn't because that would reveal their true intent and it's important to keep their attack on capitalism as clandestine as possible and goodness don't they do that well. Tim promised those gullible great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all we will have surpluses as far as the eye can see and with that he turned and walks back into the wall. As an aside, a little true story, listener, when Lynn Kosky was Education Minister, about half a dozen of us were handing out leaflets opposing public-private partnerships outside a Socialist Party conference at Mooney Valley, where the venue has this huge glass wall. And she came up to us playing, Hail Fellow, Hail Woman, Well Met, but was clearly so frazzled by our presence, she turned and walked smack into the wall, missing the door completely. And I thought, That's the education. Minister, on May Day, sure we all enjoyed the mass coverage in our media, including the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax scab papers this week. Well, Train Killing Day is great day, this week's weekly fashion week, May Day, they all receive the coverage they deserve. Like this morning's Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin devoting 15 pages to the death of a footballer. Normally we can understand why May Day doesn't rate a mention, because it clashes with people racing a steam engine in the Nongs. but that event was held a week earlier, when, dare I say it, the May Day march should have been held, if not on the day itself, rather than a week after the event mentioned the former State Minister for Private Education, and last week we bemoaned Federal Minister Simon Beringham failing Grade 1 grammar when he announced that efficiency dividend as not a dividend but a cut. Although, in fairness to poor Simon, he's now offered in that place as a grammatical and lexicological failure. But there's a positive for us, or certainly for me, what an incentive to be inefficient. That's obviously where the big rewards are, the big money. We assume under Simon et al's grasp of language, if we get an inefficiency dividend, they give us money. Interesting, most of those bestowing the efficiency dividend enjoyed the benefits of free tertiary education introduced by the socialist government in 1973, or thereabouts, I think it was 73. Yes, we ask current Socialist Party private education shadow Tania Pliber sink the state sector. Reintroducing fees and debt to be educated must have come from a very conservative government Tania. It did. It was that nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst treasurer Paul, very conservative government. And Tania lived up to her sink the State Sector epithet by attacking Simon Beringham's next big announcement that they would increase spending on schools by slashing the promised spending on schools. Tania exposing her socialist credentials by attacking poor Simon and Malcolm and scuttle them. For cutting funding to the state sector, I hear you say. Well, sorry, yet again, no. Tania attacked them for cutting handouts to a handful of rich private and religious schools. State aid for private schools is a cherished socialist principle, she exploded. And this week her supremo little Billy Shorten ambition, between advertising to win the hearts and minds of true blue Aussie white jingoistic xenophobes, sat as he did all those years ago at a desk in a Catholic school classroom and attacked any cuts for funding for private schools and especially church schools. Well, most of them are. Little Billy defending that cherry socialist principle. As I've said several times, the man who helped keep Pig Eye and Bob Menzies in government for eons, B.A. Santa Maria, would attack evil communists for brainwashing dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus and call for state aid for Catholic schools in the same sentence without even blushing. Catholic schools which were quoting the same B.A. Santa Maria, declaring it a sin, eternity in hell, to vote for the Socialist Party. Our young listener might not be aware that back then all public education funding was spent, as it should still be spent, exclusively on public primary, secondary and tertiary education. Now, finally, have I mentioned the biggest news in the world this week? Well, apart from a 94-year-old ex-footballer dying, although having said 94, the ex-bits probably are necessary, apart from Phil the Greek cutting back his onerous job of princing, whatever that entails. Sure you're as devastated as I I am, listener. Things just won't seem the same. They mentioned one of his princing jobs is patron of oodles of presumably madly radical organisations. His onerous task having his name on the top of the letterhead. What big news. Well, now I have finally mentioned it, finally on such critical matters. Now, another aside, 15 pages for the ex-footballer, two pars at the bottom of page nine for a 15-year-old worker at KFC Salt and Fat falling into a vat of hot cooking oil, caring employer fined 100 grand pocket money from the petty cash tin. Now, finally, a piece of wheat that was trivia. As the Spencer Street no longer Spencer Street foul fact- Falfax papers are, as I said, produced by scabs, and I assume, though we're not buying them, but hope like me you're looking them up every morning to see who's scabbing. A small, perhaps pedantic, but I feel important sub-editorial correction to the Fairfax last week before it was produced by scabs. Headline: World's oldest person dies at 117, which, of course, should have read: World's ex-oldest person dies at. Then again, there was a story a couple of days later that a bloke in Indonesia with other people's business had died at 140 or so. So how come the 117 was the oldest, which just goes to show how much we can believe in what the press, the mainstream media, tells us. But imagine in the world's oldest race, the number two must be looking up the death notices every day, hoping. Good afternoon.
1: And that's Mr Kevin Healy and that's the sort of week that he's had and he'll be having more of it tomorrow morning from 9 till 10 on City Limits here on 3CR. The Bolivaran government of Venezuela is facing increasing attacks from US-backed right-wing protesters and threats from the US as well and on the other hand support from left-wing and solidarity groups within Latin America and in the Asia-Pacific area. Fred Fuentes is a journalist and author who has visited Venezuela many times. Fred, from what you're reading and hearing from your friends in Venezuela, how serious is the current threat to Maduro and the Bolivarian Revolution?
3: There's two parts to that answer. The first bit is that clearly the situation in Venezuela is quite a serious situation some very serious problems a very high level of violence that is occurring in that country right now but the second part of the answer is that none of what i've just said there in terms of the difficult situation the turmoil that's going on and the violence is reflected in the kind of coverage that we're seeing in the media reporting on venezuela today if one turns on the tv one is just simply given a a message uh, no matter what channel you look at whether it's abc whether it's channel 10 whether it's Sydney Morning Herald, whether it's the Herald Sun, all of them are basically arguing the same position, that what we have in the case in Venezuela is an authoritarian government that's cracking down on its people and has led now to... I can't remember what the exact figure is at the moment, but almost 40 deaths in the country. The reality is that, firstly, the Venezuelan government is far from the kind of dictatorship that the media is talking about. We should remember that this is probably about the 12th time we've heard in the media over the last 19, 18 years that Venezuela has become a dictatorship far back as 2002 before the attempted coup against Hugo Chavez, Venezuela even then was already either on the verge of or had become a dictatorship and the media used that to justify the attempted coup against, well, the successful, temporarily successful coup against Chavez, though that it lasted for two days as it was defeated by a massive mobilization of the Venezuelan people who wanted to defend their vote defend their president, defend their government. Subsequent to that, we've seen numerous times where the media has declared, now Venezuela has finally become a dictatorship. And we've seen again for probably the 12th time Venezuela being declared that it has gone to a dictatorship. But the reality is that in Venezuela, what we see is a continuation of a government that was elected, that was clearly elected in an election, that was observed by many different institutions, pro and anti-government, all of whom declared the elections to have been uh, fair and clean elections. We have a country that has a national assembly with a majority opposition. Uh, we have a continuation of an electoral council that has been uh, consistently been shown to be uh, impartial in the way that it has run elections and in the way that it has counted the votes. So this media portrayal, firstly, of the government as being a dictatorship, is one we've heard before, but doesn't reflect the reality of what's going on on the ground. Secondly, the idea that somehow it is the people against the government is also a clear distortion. If we look at, and perhaps the most clearest example of this, of the media impressions or the media footage of who is protesting on the streets, we see that this so-called Wonder Woman, the, the new face of the Venezuelan opposition, 40-year-old, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, anyone who's been to Venezuela will immediately be able to tell you that blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, a white person is a small minority of the population in a country with a long history of Indigenous, Afro-descendant cultures. So this, this what we're really seeing, is, is a segment of the population, not a tiny segment, it must be said, but is a, a, an important segment of the country uh, that is being mobilized, but one that has been largely limited to the middle and upper classes, those that have been most wealthy, those that have been most affected by the pro-poor policies of the Chavez and Maduro government. And the third lie that is being put across is this question of uh, the violence. We just constantly hear about state repression and death, but yet if one was to go down and look and break down every single one of the deaths that has occurred since the start of this latest wave of violent protest you see that the majority of those that have died have actually died directly as a result of opposition violence, not as a result of either police or national force, or military force, uh, violence against, against protesters. But, of course, the media is interested in getting rid of the Maduro government, is interested in portraying an image that's supportive of the protesters. Uh, a blind eye is turned to that violence, and instead this media spin is put on to create this image of... As I said, an authoritarian government, which is opposed by all the people, and whose only last resort is to increasingly crack down and with violence against the, the and the repression against these protest movements.
1: Who are those behind the violence on the streets?
3: In many cases, they're the same people that were behind the attempted at coup in, in 2002 uh, against Hugo Chavez, uh, and those that were against that were behind the violent protests in the lead-up to the recall referendum against Chávez in, t- in the violent protests that occurred in 2004, 2005, involved in the violent protests that occurred in 2013 after Maduro was elected, behind the violent protests that occurred in 2014, uh, in early 2014. Uh, and these are largely right-wing politicians, people involved with either old political parties who as a result of the, uh, the rise of the Chavista movement, uh, the rise of, initially, the, the party known as the movement of the Fifth Republic, uh, which would subsequently become the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, a movement that you know, increasingly uh, was able to win electoral support and, through that process, win governmental power, win positions in the National Assembly. These old parties uh, lost that, their power, so since that time have been increasingly violent, vitriolic in their attempts to re- regain that power. And we also have the rise of, of sort of newer right-wing parties, in many cases led by people who were part of these old parties but who want to present a new face, a new image, uh, to distance themselves from those parties that were responsible for, for the real crisis that the media doesn't talk about, which was the crisis that Venezuela was in before Chavez came into power, a country that was absolutely neared in poverty, triple-digit inflation, all the kind of things the media talks about today, but they ignored which was occurring in Venezuela throughout the late 80s and 90s. Uh, these opposition parties are very much the key figures behind the protests that, that are occurring today. Of course, as always, and throughout this whole period, in collaboration with those that have been funders of them or backers of them, and that includes uh, people such as the US government through its various aid agencies, whether it be the National Endowment for Democracy or USA, you know, who over the, the last... you know almost two decades, have have funded them in the tune of of millions of dollars.
1: So is it just funding or is it more than that?
3: I think there's a number of ways that the the US government uh, has been helping. And not just the US government, I should also add other other institutions. We see one of the biggest institutions that today has been uh, very much if not actively supporting, perhaps even going as far as spearheading the the campaign against the Maduro government, and that's the the organisation of the American states, in particular through its secretary-general Luis Almagro. What we see is that, as I said, one is the question of funding. Secondly is the question of concrete actions that have been taken against the Venezuelan government. In the case of the US government, a number of sanctions have been put on individual members of the Venezuelan government. And also a decree, uh, which was, should be mentioned, was initially passed by Obama, was then reaffirmed by Obama, or extended a year later, and has subsequently been extended by uh, the new president, Donald Trump, which declares Venezuela to be a, a threat to national security. And of course, anything that the US declares to be a threat to a national, to its own national security, It is clearly a, a country uh, that is in, in the sights of, of its big economic and, and military power. We've also seen the help through the constant media campaign being waged by Venezuela. And here I think the OAS has played a very important role, the organisation of American states, who in the months leading up to the beginning of this new wave of, of violent protest, was pushing extremely hard, including to the point of convoking illegal meetings of its own organisation, meetings that were not meetings convened by consensus of its members, as the organisation has historically done but attempts to create the image that the entire continent was against Venezuela when the reality was that there continues to be a large number of countries in the region who support Venezuela. But the OIS in its attempt to, to suspend Venezuela from the organisation, to declare it essentially a, a rogue state, a failed state, has been consistently trying to campaign, uh, the, in the latest instance, the, the Secretary-General of the Organisation of American States coming out in the media, declaring that he, had heard, that he believes that Leopoldo Lopez, one of the opposition leaders uh, who is currently in jail because of his role in the violent protests that occurred in 2014, had died in jail, even though it was complete fake news rumour. He's helped spread that internationally. So we see that there's a number of ways that they've been helping funding, sanctions but in particular the huge media campaign to attempt to demonise and isolate the Venezuelan government.
1: Just explain a little bit more about the Organisation of American States and and how it has operated in the past.
3: Yeah, well, look, the the Organisation of American States uh, has essentially been around since about the 50s. Best really described or summed up its role by the way that... uh, the yeah, Argentine-Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara described it, which was really adapted as the, the Ministry of Colonies for the US, and that is that the US has, from the beginning, very much dominated that, used that organisation as a way to be able to keep its control over the region. It involves all of the countries in the region, so US, Canada, all of the Central American countries, the Caribbean, all of the South American countries. I should add the only exception uh, being Cuba, who was expelled after the, the Cuban revolution uh, had occurred, at the request of the U.S. The Organisation of American States has been largely used to promote U.S. foreign policy in the region. That has, to some extent, begun to change, or at least be challenged, uh, with the rise of a lot of these sort of new left governments in South America. But it was quickly became apparently the organization of American states uh, would always still be heavily controlled by the U.S. The fact that its, its offices are based in the U.S. Uh, and always have been based in the U.S. They're not, they're not rotated around around the region. That in part helps explain why CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, was created which is essentially the same organization minus the U.S. and Canada as a body for the region to be able to you know, come together and, and have its discussions without the direct intervention and and influence of the U.S. and Canada. And so that's why we see that today the U.S. is attempting to use the OAS once again in its campaign against Venezuela, not just the U.S., but other right-wing governments in the region as well. And it it explains also why Venezuela has decided that it will begin the process of removing itself from the organisation of American states, that it believes it no longer serves any useful purpose as a space for uh, diplomatic discussions and consensus building, and so it, it is decided that it will, it will begin the, a debate within Venezuela and, and more broadly in the region of the usefulness of the organisation parallel to the, the long process so, because it is a somewhat of a... I think it's a one- or two-year process to actually uh, begin to extricate itself from that organisation.
1: What penalties could be there if they do leave?
3: This is a first of its kind. So there are, you know, in, in theory, certain sort of monetary uh, penalties that could be applied and all that. But because no country has tried to do this before... And because the, the difficulty of enforcing a country to have to pay these these fines um, not being tested yet, it's, it's unclear. But I think a big part of, you know, how much of a penalty that Venezuela may or may not have to pay for it will be, firstly, uh, how much some of the other countries uh, that have also been highly critical of the IS. And just to mention one, Bolivia has been extremely critical in the recent period. Both because of the stance that the OAS has taken towards Venezuela, but more specifically, because Boliv- the Bolivian representative was the current pro temperate president of the Council of the Council of the OAS, rotated position. But it was their position, or their, their, they were the ones that have the, the ability to convoke meetings of the Council of the OAS. But US and other countries essentially circumvented the president of the Council and convened a meeting of the council on their own, one that was clearly legitimate outside of the regulatory frameworks of of the OAS. And so this was another reason for Bolivia to denounce the way that the OAS was was operating. So it'll be interesting to see whether other countries follow the lead of Venezuela, uh, which would, of course, start to really, you know, call into question the institution as a whole. And combined with that will be, whether CELAC itself as, the, as an alternative to the OS, holds up. And now the Venezuela attempted to convene a meeting of, of CELAC, or well, in fact they did convene a meeting of CELAC only a few weeks ago. However, uh, because of the, the rift in the region, because of the different positions that have been taken in the region, no no real conclusion or resolution was able to come out of that meeting. And CELAC itself is still a, very much an, an, an organisation in formation. It's only, if I remember correctly, about three years old four years old so it has yet to proven itself as, as, as a viable alternative but these will uh, be factors into how much of a penalty Venezuela will pay and I should add that uh, apart from any financial penalty that the other big penalty that Venezuela potentially could pay is this is used to, to further isolate Venezuela internationally as to to sort of further create the image of of a pariah state one that you know essentially refusing to, to go along with international diplomacy. Uh, as I said, that will, that will be reduced if other countries are following the lead of Venezuela or working together with Venezuela on, on both leaving the OAS and helping to strengthen Selac.
1: Just looking at the economy in Venezuela at the moment, we're told that people are, are virtually going hungry because of food shortages and shortages of many other goods. Is that correct or not?
3: As I said in the answer to your first question, there's no doubt that there is uh, serious problems in Venezuela that, that go beyond just the, the protests that are occurring. But as I also said in the first question, much of it is, is clearly being distorted by the media. So when it comes to the question of, for instance, access to food, you know, the levels of uh, hunger that, that are occurring in Venezuela, firstly, yes, there clearly is a problem with the supply of food, not to the level that the media portrays, not within the context, that the media uh, discusses, uh, which is actually an, a huge increase in food consumption that has occurred under the Chavez and Maduro government over, over the last 15 years. And uh, most importantly, the media doesn't discuss, well, why isn't there food? It's just implied that this is, of course, must be the government's fault, that only the government could be responsible for the fact that there's no food. Um, but no questions are asked as to, w- what about the, the people that were only a few years ago producing and importing food at record levels. Why have they stopped doing these? And Venezuela, as much as the media will like to portray it as some kind of a state dictatorship where the state controls everything, the private economy continues to be the largest part of the economy. So they continue to have a lot of the economic power. They are the ones that continue to have the ability to either produce and import or to stop producing and stop importing. But none of this is raised in the media as well about who is responsible uh, ultimately for what is occurring in terms of levels of food supply in the country. But as to a country on the verge of, of starvation, these kind of exaggerated uh, sort of uh, images that are, that are portrayed, or a country living out of rubbish bins, this kind of sort of uh, basically outright lies in, in many cases that media portrays is all, is all part of a, a campaign to try to create an image of a, of a country in ruins, of a country on the verge of, of collapse. But as I said, it's nothing new, which, you know, only two years ago, the media were telling us the exact same thing, and yet two years later, Venezuela continues to to move along. There hasn't been any of the the mass starvation, the kinds that are occurring in many countries around the world, but which the media turns a blind eye to, the media doesn't care about, because there's no political value, there's no political interest in trying to uh, use that to undermine any government.
1: What can the government do to contain the violence?
3: What the government is attempting to do at the moment uh, is to convene a constituent assembly that can discuss, uh, basically try to reach a new consensus uh, amongst the different political forces in the country about the way forward. Uh, The opposition are saying that they want new elections. Well, the reality is that they had an opportunity to convene new elections. They had the opportunity to have a recall referendum, uh, one that they, they, they failed to comply with. They're now trying to demand uh, uh, new elections on the president, but the elections aren't due until 2018. Uh, so they will, they will have to wait until uh, 2018. But in the meantime, the government said, well, why don't we convene a constituent assembly, just as Chávez did when he was first elected, to bring delegates from all over the country, elected by the people, to come together and discuss, well, what, how do we you know, move past this? How do we get through this, this impasse uh, that the country is currently at? And what's somewhat ironic is the fact that an opposition, who only a few years ago was demanding exactly this, today is just denouncing this as a self-coup, as, a as an attempt by the government to, you know, to bring, put all power into its hands and to, to silence uh, the opposition. So a we'll, key question will be how successful is this attempt by the government to reach out to all sectors um, of society? Of course, um, in its proposal, it's not only aiming to incorporate the opposition into being part of this discussion, but, of course, trying to uh, activate and mobilise its own support base, which continues to to remain strong. I mean, that's another aspect of the media campaign uh, or the media coverage that that is constantly being denied, uh, which is that throughout this whole period there have also been a a number of numerous protests uh, carried out by pro-government forces or forces in support of the Maduro government, but none of those protests are are ever... um, sort of covered in in the media so this initiative hopes to perhaps mobilize those sectors inspire them to help them come up with proposals as well about how to how to sort of get out of, out of the situation that that it that the government is currently in or the country is currently in
1: how important is what's happening in neighboring countries
3: well I think there's no doubt that if we hadn't for instance had uh, you know the the constitutional coup in Brazil and I think you know that do you want to look at the 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 double standards of the media. One only has to look at exactly what's gone on in Brazil uh, and compare that to in Venezuela to see how much of a political um, campaign this is against uh, Venezuela. If we hadn't have seen a constitutional coup where essentially uh, the court uh, removed, the uh, court and the National Assembly removed a president that had been democratically elected and put in, you know, someone completely different from a, from a different party in order to steer the country in a, in a rightward trajectory. Uh, the exact thing they actually accused the venezuelan government of doing of supposedly of the the president and the supreme court shutting down the national assembly um but which is is is, is a distortion of what has actually occurred uh, in venezuela but we see that when it happens in brazil it's it's all a legitimate part of of the democratic process when it happens in venezuela it's all authoritarianism and a moves a move to dictatorship But but the fact that the biggest country in the region is now Shifted its its foreign policy position of one of you know, uh, if not active support for Venezuela and the Bolivarian Revolution, certainly one of willing to work with and, and involve Venezuela in, and and, and, wor- uh, and work together with the region to one of direct confrontation uh, with the Venezuelan government. Similarly, uh, in Argentina, we've seen the election of a right wing government, and we've got again a, a shift in foreign policy towards one of much more harsh criticism of, of the Venezuelan government. So all of this is has further emboldened the opposition uh, who, who understand that lacking the majority support within the country uh, to be able to get rid of the Maduro government, very much rely on having international support to see if they can use that to shift the balance of forces. And it gets back, it, this gets back to the point of what we were talking about before, that in order to really understand what's going on in Venezuela, to really understand why the media coverage is so distorted, is to understand that the reality is that in Venezuela, the movement imposing the Maduro government on its own is not strong enough to get rid of this government. It clearly isn't a majority movement. It's an important movement, as I said, a large large section of the population, but it's not a majority movement. So what it's had to rely on is that hoping through media coverage, through internet diplomatic pressure, through sanctions, through all of these kind of external factors, um, they can hope to... And you know, And we shouldn't, say, rule out the possibility of of even more drastic actions, including, you know, can never be ruled out military actions. And it's certainly something the opposition have raised. It's certainly something that in recent meetings between opposition leaders and representatives of the US Congress have talked about the need for swift action to end this situation. Uh, So all of these, you know, all of this is part of helping to change the correlation of forces inside Venezuela, one that they know they can't change simply uh, through their protests that they've been carrying out now. Over the last month, month and a half,
1: in the past, the support of the military has been really important. What's the feeling now? Do people talk about that at all?
3: Oh, it's, it's certainly constantly being talked about, and, and the opposition uh, con- and, and the protesters are, are constantly wavering between calls for the military to fulfil their patriotic duty of you know of defending the constitution against the, the authoritarian regime, to you know outright violent attacks on the military and denigration of them as people who don't have the, you know, pardon the expression, you know, the balls to, to kind of stand up to, to the Maduro government. Uh, this is, you know, constantly being played out in, in all the sort of social media uh, sort of campaign that the Opposition Act is, um, are sort of uh, pushing. And, and, I, and I know that a number have talked of the need for or certainly, you know, the, the wanting to support any kind of military action, military coup against the government. But until now, there's been a clear sense that the military are quite solid in the sense of defending the constitutional order. They believe there's been no rupture of the constitutional order, that the Maduro government is currently the elected government of Venezuela, and they've made it clear that they will continue to defend the elected government of Venezuela. And if tomorrow there was to be elections, or 2018. Uh, when the elections are scheduled, there are elections, and the opposition, when well, they, will, they will defend that democratic will of will of the people, but they will not intervene to support a minority of the country in overthrowing a, a government that's been voted in by the majority.
1: What can the Maduro government do to incre- improve the economy at, the, at this time? Because that must be a, an important thing as well.
3: So that's obviously a huge question, and, and that's something that you know, a lot of people in, in Venezuela have been discussing. But I think the Maduro government. Its approach up until now, certainly for probably the last year or two years, has very much been to try to reach out to the private sector to sort of say, look, let's put the political differences aside. We are willing to work with you in whatever way possible to get production up and running. One gets a sense that two years later, that strategy is faltering. It hasn't really helped to turn around the situation. There have been some improvements in some areas. It hasn't really fulfilled the, the sort of uh, goals that the Maduro government, I think, had initially set itself in terms of thinking that this where this strategy might take it. Parallel to that, the other thing the Maduro government has very much focused on is trying to organise a network of community activists willing to be part of ensuring that what food is imported by the state, is distributed and is made to get to, the, to those that most need it that seems to be working to the scale that it's, it's operating at. So it, it obviously hasn't fixed the problem of food distribution, but where communities have been able to organise themselves, where uh, the food has been able to be imported uh, in the numbers necessary, it has begun to at least alleviate some of these problems of, of food production. So in that context, I would say that a, a, a sort of a, a way out of this crisis, it seems to me requires... Firstly, A, a slightly different approach to the private sector, one that says, look, we will work with you, but if you refuse to work with us, then we will take the measures necessary to ensure that production begins once again, whether that be expropriations of companies, whether that be that we no longer continue to give you funds and we redirect those funds to state companies, whatever the the specific case-by-case scenario might be. But I think a stronger attitude towards the private sector may be necessary in, in this regard. Combined with a further impulse towards sort of relying on popular organisation to really tackle all those bottlenecks that have been created by an economy that one that the Chavez and Maduro government inherited, one that has been based on uh, largely, you know, summed in a few words, an economy that produced oil in order to get money, in order to buy everything that it needed. Uh, and import everything that is needed. That, of course, is now been reaching a bottleneck where the government may have control of the oil, but it doesn't have control of who's importing stuff and who's distributing it. So it needs to rely on the people to be able to help to ensure that its goals of distributing food and, and of course, other products as well, medicines, healthcare, all these other vital necessities that people need um, are actually... uh, ..begin to occur and begin to alleviate the, the problems that are occurring in Venezuela today.
1: And, of course, that means the importance of the missions...
3: Well, that's right. The the social missions that were set up by Chavez, which were, you know, certainly the initial ones in particular were largely based on bringing together organised communities or activists in communities that didn't have higher levels of organisation to really take into their own hands questions of education, healthcare, uh, housing, really start to resolve the kind of issues that have pervaded... You know Venezuela for for many years, not issues that are new to the Chavez government. The difference being that Chavez government actually tries to deal with these issues, and in particular, to deal with these issues by working together uh, with the people. And that's why one of the things that the government has set out for itself in the constitution, uh, in this proposal for a constituent assembly, is to very much enshrine these social missions in the constitution and to make, integrate them much more into the functioning of the Venezuelan state, given that much of the old inherited state bureaucracy has clearly shown itself to be inept when it comes to being able to deal with a lot of the problems that Venezuela is, has, has faced and is facing today.
1: And that's journalist and author Fred Fuentes speaking about the story that we're being told about the situation in Venezuela and possibly the the real story of what the situation is in Venezuela. And in weeks to come, possibly next week, we'll be talking to Fred about the recent elections in Ecuador. On the weekend of May 20 and 21, the harmonious and enlightening Buddha's Day and Multicultural Festival will grace Federation Square. Celebrating our multicultural and multi-faith society, people from all walks of life can enjoy a host of free and insightful activities. There's everything from entertaining cultural performances to unique tea meditations, plus children's activities, a world peace ceremony and delectable vegetarian food fair. For more information, visit buddhaday.org.au and that's spelled B-U-D-D-H-A-D-A-Y
0: a 3CR supporter.
3: Hey Farm, what's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, an undersea researcher? Wrong. If you reckon you can do better than Farm at Trivia, join the Out of the Blue team. For our annual Radiothon fundraiser, Wednesday, the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6 pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au.
1: Today, the third in the series of talks by Chris Gaffney commemorating the 1917 Russian
4: Revolution. Lenin's forceful tactics brought rapid support for the Bolshevik Party. This is in nineteen seventeen. This is illustrated in Victor Serge's Year One of the Russian Revolution, in which he gives us figures of the voting for the Moscow Municipal Duma. A Duma's was sort of fakish local council set up by the Tsar after the nineteen hundred and five revolution. Well, in the 1915 elections, the social revolutionaries, who you remember represented the peasantry, and the Mensheviks, moderate revolutionaries who thought the next stage should be capitalism, well, they got 70% of the votes cast. This fell to 18% in the 1917 voting, while the Bolsheviks polled more than 50% of the votes in that year and had 350 delegates out of the 710 elected. This is from year one of the Russian Revolution. After Kornilov's march on Petrograd, he was a Tsarist general, Lenin's insistence on marching separately from the provisional government, even though they were both interested in Kornilov's defeat, resulted after his defeat in the formation of the Red Guard by the Arming of the Workers and the establishment of the Military Revolutionary Committee on October 16, 1917, over which the President of the Soviets presided, Trotsky. This resulted in a dual power. That is, a situation in which the government attempts to order regiments they considered contaminated with revolutionary ideas to send them to the front line, this would be countermanded by the Military Revolutionary Committee, which drew its authority from the Soviets, which were a 100% solid working-class organisation. John Reed, in his Ten Days That Shook the World, has this to say. The people around me appeared to be in ecstasy. They seemed about to burst forth spontaneously in a religious hymn. Trotsky read a resolution to the general effect that they were ready to fight for the workers and peasants to the last drop of their blood. Who was in favour of this resolution? The immense crowd raised their hands as a single man. Trotsky went on. The hands remained raised. Trotsky said... Let this vote be your oath. You swear to give all your strength not to hesitate before any sacrifice to support the Soviet, which undertakes to win the revolution and give you land, peace and bread. The hands remained raised. The crowd roared, approved. They took the oath, and the same was proposed and repeated all over Petersburg, which later became Leningrad. The last preparations were made everywhere. Everywhere they swore the last oath, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men. It was insurrection. Kerensky, who was the president of the provisional government and a former social revolutionary, a lawyer, well, he escaped from St. Petersburg, but his ministers were arrested at the Winter Palace on the 7th of November. And that evening, the all-Russian Congress of Soviets met with the power of government in its hands. When the question of the assumption of power by the Soviet came up for the discussion, the Mensheviks and the right social revolutionaries. Now, the social revolutionaries represented the peasants, who were at least 70% of the population. But, of course, they were divided into right and left, mainly rich peasants versus many more poor peasants. On this occasion, the Mensheviks, who thought the next day should be capitalism and not the working-class seizing power, they and the right-wing social revolutionaries withdrew from the Congress. Lenin addressed the Congress as follows. In Russia, the immense majority of the peasantry have said, enough of this game with the capitalists. We shall march with the workers. A single decree abolishing the landowner's estate will win us the confidence of the peasantry. They will understand that their salvation is with the workers. We shall set up workers' control of industry. We are beginning to build the socialist society. The first Soviet government was set up by the Congress. It elected an all-Russian Soviet executive, had 102 members, 62 Bolsheviks, 20 left social revolutionaries. After discussing peace proposals, the Congress dispersed on November 10th, 1917. Well, on the one hand, every hour brought encouraging messages from trade unions, the army and the local Soviets, but counter-revolutionary forces began to grow. Petrograd only had its supplies for a few days and none of the government agencies functioned. Denunciatory telegrams poured from general headquarters to all the people you'd expect, municipal doomers, provincial councils and every former government body. The revolutionaries were labelled bandits, usurpers, traitors who were unleashing civil war and the like. The bourgeois press, which continued to publish, we might add, declared that order will be soon restored that loyal regiments were marching up from the front with Kerensky at their head and a new provisional government would be set up. And the unspoken word was, every communist in the place would be shot. The cadets seized the telephone exchange. They were the aristocrats' children in the cadets. That was a big bourgeois party. But they were quickly ousted. All the other socialist parties were against the seizure of power. The army under Kerensky was checked by the Red Guard and disbanded. For the time, the situation was saved. But the Soviet government was to meet new opposition of a severe nature from the Constituent Assembly, which had been convened to meet in January 1918. That is two months after they've seized power. And they had agreed to that. Elections to the Constituent Assembly, which is a bit very much like our parliaments, in the sense of being geographic, you get represented by somebody based on geography, class doesn't come into it, he or she might represent it, it doesn't seem to matter. Elections to the constituent Assembly were agreed to at the Soviet Congress. They were awaited with mystical faith by the social revolutionaries, For the obvious fact that they were 20% of the population, they thought, we are home and hose, And millions of the peasants and the radical bourgeoisie would undoubtedly secure for them a majority, which would certainly embarrass the Bolsheviks, who are the, the government in power. Will there be any progress if the Assembly is composed of cadets, social revolutionaries and Mensheviks, said Lenin? This mistake shall not cost us the revolution. The voting for the Assembly was as follows. Bourgeois parties, cadets, 13%. Social revolutionaries, the peasant party, 58%. The Mensheviks, 4%. The Bolsheviks, 25%. The social revolutionaries, the Mensheviks, combined to make their total strength 62%. A Lenin wrote a pamphlet about this called Elections to the Constituent Assembly, and he analysed this voting. The country, being far away from events, had voted for their party, the Social Revolutionaries. The cities were for the Bolsheviks, that is, the immense majority of the workers. For the two capitals, Moscow and Leningrad, the voting was cadets 515,000, Bolsheviks 837 in the army, the cadets, one million eight hundred thousand. The cadets, fifty-one thousand. Bolsheviks, one million seven hundred. That is half the army for the Bolsheviks. Overwhelmingly, where the regiments were close to events, Lenin's views on the Constituent Assembly, and this is a very important question because the workers have just won power through the Soviets, and then an old promise comes up of the Constituent Assembly, which is now met and is bound to be hostile to Soviet power. In other words, it will become an organ of the bourgeoisie, leading the peasantry. A summary of Lenin's views on the Constituent Assembly are as follows. The Assembly provided the widest democracy possible under a bourgeois republic, like we've got in Australia. The Soviets provide a superior form of democracy that leads more rapidly to socialism. Three, the majority of the people have not yet had time to settle vital questions by formal democratic methods. Four, civil war in Finland and the South make it impossible to settle vital questions by the vote. To consider the Constituent Assembly as above the class struggle and the civil war was to adopt a bourgeois point of view. Well, the voting elected 520 delegates to the Assembly, 161 Bolsheviks, 267 social revolutionaries, 41 Mensheviks and others. The Bolshevik President opened the Assembly and urged the adoption of a document drawn up by Lenin and supported by the all-Russian Soviet executive. The Bolsheviks' proposal was Russia to be a federation of Soviet republics, endorsement of the socialist revolution, nationalisation of land and workers' control of production, the formation of a supreme economic council to ensure the powers of the worker over the exploiters as the first step towards the complete expropriation of the means of production and transportation. Nationalising the banks? a universal obligation to work, formation of a red socialist army, annulment of debts to landowners, the bourgeoisie and the Tsar, no exploiter of Labour to hold official positions, and the constituent assembly to devote itself to the general elaboration of the fundamental principles for the transformation to a socialist society. Now, remember, this is the Bolshevik proposal to an assembly that is clearly on the figures hostile to this idea. This, of course, was knocked back. The Bolsheviks and the left social revolutionaries withdrew from the assembly after the following declaration by Lenin. Not wishing to hide the crimes committed by the enemies of the people for one moment, we declare that we are withdrawing from the Constituent Assembly, trusting in the Soviet to decide what attitude we must adopt towards the counter-revolution majority. The following night, the Soviet executive issued a decree dissolving the Constituent Assembly. Lenin said this, The toiling masses have been convinced by the experience that bourgeois parliamentary democracy is outworn, that it is incompatible with the construction of socialism, for national instruments cannot take the place of class instruments in breaking the resistance of the owning classes and laying the foundations for socialism. Still to today, I might add. And Lenin added, While parliaments never give the slightest support to the revolutionary movement." the Soviets breathed fire into the revolution and cried to the masses, fight for yourselves, organise for yourselves. Despite extreme hardship and difficulties, the overwhelming support for the Soviet government from the armed workers and the Red Guard enabled the Soviet to disperse the constituent assembly without resistance. The war came to the end in November 1918, this relieving the pressure of the German armies. But... At the same time, the revolution was confronted by further dangers from an invasion on several fronts organised by international capitalism. And anybody who was prepared to annihilate Bolsheviks got money. No money was spared. Opportunist generals were provided with funds so long as they were prepared to take an army into Russia to destroy the Soviet international. Recruiting posters, officers were open for this purpose at the same time as an economic blockade was enforced by world capitalism on Russia. The struggle against the invading armies lasted two years, sometimes on more than one front. There were 14 invading armies, by the way. But by the end of 1920, the last of the invading armies had been driven over the frontiers. Trotsky had created, organised and led the Red Army from the rawest material into a force that defeated invaders from all over the capitalist world. A dangerous threat to the revolution was contained in the German advance into Russia after the 1917 seizure of power. On the eve of the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, the Bolsheviks met to attempt to what was again to be their position on peace terms and the German advance. And there are three viewpoints put forward. Immediately sign the peace terms, said Lenin. Trotsky said, no, no, break off negotiations. Doing a propaganda thing about German violence, Let's hope the revolution breaks out in Germany. Three was, let's forget that, let's make a revolutionary war against the the revolutionary government, which I think was reasonably unrealistic in terms of the realities. The Bolshevik Party met the next day. Lenin outlined the impossibility of fighting against the peace terms, however bad they were, adding that refusal to sign would mean that the revolutionary government would be swept away and another government would sign it. Trotsky advocated prolonging negotiations and issuing international propaganda for a German revolution which would be more important than that in Russia. Eventually, uh, Trotsky's view initially won the majority, but then the German armies kept advancing further and further right throughout the Ukraine. Eventually, Lenin won out, and Trotsky and uh, a couple of others were sent to make peace with the Germans. And one of the Bolshevik delegations... Telegraph Lenin, as they were going in there, and thought, what clothes do we wear? Yeah, meaning because the, the Europeans, they'd be on their and Lenin replied, pyjamas if it gets peace. Well, while the workers were enthusiastic to defend the revolution, the peasants now refused support. A new German offensive brought them close to the capital. Lenin again proposed the meaning signing of peace. More difficult terms were insisted on and Russia was ordered to sign away the Baltic territories, Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, the Ukraine and Finland. Lenin threatened to revine if these services, terms were not accepted. He won a majority and at the All-Russian Soviet Congress in February 1918, Trotsky and Kamenev reported on the peace terms which the Congress endorsed and which were finally signed at Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. Lenin said... This, never in history has any question relating to the class struggle been solved other than by violence. We are partisans of violence so long as it emanates from the exploited toiling masses and is directed against the exploiters. Again, in presenting an historic conception of the Russian Revolution, Marx and Engels used to say, France will begin and Germany will finish off the revolution. After Brest-Litovsk, Russia lost 40% of its working class with the occupation of the Donetsk Oil Basin, 90% of its fuel industry, 90% of its sugar industry, 65% of its metal industry, and 50% of its wheat-growing areas. The left communists declared the Brest-Litovsk Treaty to be the slow death of the revolution. Lenin at the 7th Congress said this, one of the essential differences between a bourgeois revolution and a socialist one is that the former, born out of the feudal order, builds up its economic organs little by little in the heart of the old regime, if only by the development of commerce, which gradually modifies the whole appearance of feudal society. It's quite otherwise with the socialist revolution. Here we have more the task of destruction. We have infinitely more difficult tasks of organisation. And it is true, and these should be remembered when we later come to deal with Stalin, that without the German Revolution, we shall perish. Perhaps we shall not perish in Moscow, but at Vladivostok. In any case, we shall perish without the German Revolution, that is, the revolutionary spending. On the nature of the Soviet state, he said, it's a new type of state, without a bureaucracy, without a police, without a standing army, a state which substitutes for bourgeois democracy, a new type of democracy, forces the toiling masses into the vanguard, gives the legislative, executive and military power to the workers, thus creating an apparatus which is designed to re-educate those same masses. We are only beginning our work in Russia, and for the moment we are beginning it badly. In 1919, Lenin and the Bolsheviks witnessed the establishment of the Third International, which was an international of revolutionary Marxist parties, which, of course, degenerated under Stalin in the late 20s into an international agency, Serving the Russian bureaucracy's policy needs, which are invariably reactionary. Nevertheless, the International held four congresses during Lenin's lifetime, despite the difficulties of civil war and reconstruction. Lenin's last few years were preoccupied with the growing bureaucratization in the Soviet Union, and he wrote With the example of the People's Commissariat of Foreign Affairs, which was under Trotsky, our state apparatus is to a considerable extent a survival of the past and has undergone hardly any serious charge. In fact, a growing alliance developed between Lenin and Trotsky against this bureaucratization, as personified by men like Stalin. Lenin, in his so-called testament, actually called for the removal of Stalin from the post of party secretary. This man lacks elementary honesty, he said. The testament was suppressed after Lenin's death. We should not see this testament or the struggle between Lenin and Trotsky after Lenin's death in personal terms, but as a struggle between social forces. At the end of 1922, Lenin suffered a stroke. He continued to work between and during attacks of paralysis right throughout 1923, and he died on January the 21st, 1924.
1: And thanks to Chris Caffney for the... The last three talks on the Russian Revolution of nineteen nineteen and the the years coming up to nineteen seventeen and as he said in recent in further weeks, he'll be looking at the role of Stalin in the Soviet union that's for a little bit later on and if you'd like to hear more of Chris. Apart from great voices, which is two to four on a tuesday here keep left is between ten and eleven on friday morning three c r eight fifty five a m three c r digital three c r streaming on three c r dot org dot a u and there's also the podcast there as well so get onto that web page and All the different ways that you can listen to the good programs on 3CR.
3: Hey, farm! What's someone who studies things under the sea called? Uh, An undersea researcher. Wrong! If you reckon you can do better than farm at trivia, join the out of the blue team. For our annual Radiothon Fundraiser, Wednesday the 10th of May at Highlander Bar, 6 pm. And get your tickets via the Out of the Blue Facebook page or search Out of the Blue on eventbrite.com.au <laughs> Hey, are you wearing the latest 3CR t shirt this summer? We have a limited number of 40th birthday t shirts for sale. Designed by local artist Emily Floyd, these awesome Radical Radio t shirts are available from our studios at 21 Smith Street,
5: Fitzroy during business hours. Or you can shop online at 3cr.org.au shop. For just $20 or $15 for
3: kids' sizes, you can look great and help 3CR celebrate 40 years of radical radio.
1: In recent years, activists in support of an independent Western Sahara have successfully campaigned against a number of Australian companies importing phosphate mineral rock from the occupied territory of Western Sahara. The exporting of the phosphate rock is seen as illegal as Western Sahara is under occupation by Morocco, the country benefiting from the plunder of the Western Sahara phosphate rock. The only company in Australia holding out is Incident Pivot Limited, which continues to export from the colony, and shipments are met with protests when the ships arrived in Australia to unload. But last week, a new development in the protests against these imports And, of course, they're not only to Australia, as Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association will explain. Kate, you've described the event over the past week as a very interesting new development. Is that a bit of an understatement?
5: Well, we hope it's going to be a a game-changer, but it will very much depend on how the court decides when it is looked at by a, a South African Judge on the eighteenth of May, ten days' time.
1: Take us back to how this began.
5: Western Sahara Resource Watch, the international uh, observatory body that looks after, looks at what's happening with the natural resources, has been researching the phosphate plunder in it with a series of reports called P for Plunder, documenting how many shipments have gone and where they've gone to and how much phosphate has been removed from the Sahrawi territory and also made estimates at the value of the exports that Morocco has done with the product that belongs to the Sahrawi people according to international law. And we have protested all the different importers, right, risen to them, done various different ways of protesting. In Australia, we've been to the annual meeting of Incitec Pivot many times. We've also been, we also went to the annual meeting of West Farmers in Perth, but after a few years, they decided not to continue importing this particular material. They had ethical concerns about it. So the only one remaining now, there was also a uh, private company in Tasmania, impact fertilisers, which they don't have a, annual meetings because it's not—it's a, a private company, but uh, we have written to them and we have protested with the customs uh, officials in, in Hobart, for example, and eventually they decided not to import anymore. So Incitec Pivot was the last one remaining. As a matter of fact, we thought that the shipment that was coming on this ship called Cherry Blossom was actually due to uh, expected at Incitec Pivot because that is the normal route that they take. Uh, However, it turned out that it was actually going to Bluff in New Zealand for one of their two importers called Balance Agri-Nutrients. So that was a a, a first surprise. I think uh, Balance were also extremely surprised. They said that they had... Been importing over many years. They'd had a hundred shipments with no problems, and suddenly this has happened. And the Moroccan press commented that this was a way of saying that they were astonished <laughs> that it happened. So th- there has been a big surprise factor, I think, in this new move by the Sahrawi Liberation Movement called the Polisario Front. And we're still waiting to uh, find out really what. Whether it will be a, proved to be a game changer, but I, I think it should be because now the importers know that they, you know, can't just keep doing the same um, business as usual.
1: The ship has been, I suppose, you would say, impounded in South Africa. Under what legal proceedings is this happening?
5: There are a number of different threads to this, I suppose, but one of them is to what they call arrest the ship, that is to stop the ship pending a decision about its cargo, that decision that will be made on the 18th might decide it could continue if uh, the value of the cargo was paid as a security for an eventual further judicial determination about the ownership, because who exactly owns the material won't be decided Friday week.
1: What I'm meaning, Kate, is why has this ship been stopped yet hundreds of others haven't?
5: You know, you have to really speak to the Polisario about that and, and why they've not done it before now. But
1: uh, Isn't it to do with a, a law that's been passed in European...
5: Well, yes, I mean, that is certainly... I think that has helped to make them feel justified in doing it. I think they may well have wanted to do it before, But the new law uh, that was, or the judgment that was handed down by the European Court of Justice says that Morocco can't do commercial dealings on Western Sahara's behalf because Western Sahara is not part of Morocco. This one, that particular judgment concerned a particular trade deal with the European Union on agricultural and fisheries products, but it, it applies to really any of the natural resources of Western Sahara. Yet, at the same time, you know, although one might say it does, this will, in, in a certain sense, be a test case of that new law, uh, which is one thing that makes it quite interesting.
1: Is there a similar organisation in New Zealand to ORSA?
5: There is. There's the Western Sahara Campaign NZ, it has a Facebook page and I think they do Twitter as well. So yes, one can look on Facebook and see what they've been saying. They've been talking a lot with the Radio New Zealand who's done a couple of programs at least on this. Radio New Zealand interviewed the CEO of Balance Nutrients who um, said that you know he, he didn't expect take very long, but it will take a certain amount of time before they can get it through. They're confident that they can get it, you know, that it won't actually interrupt their trade. And so he, as he's been quite sort of confident about this, but meanwhile, they will make sure that they're not, um, that the New Zealand farmers won't suffer. Uh, There's also been a statement from the other importer called Ravenstown, who said that they um, also didn't think that they were doing anything wrong they had be this guy had been to uh, see the phosphate mine and he had been shown a lot of good things that the company was doing for local people and so he was quite uh, you know quite confident that it was all all right but he said he'd never seen the other side of the wall which is where the Sahari refugees are in southwest Algeria. However, um, he said nobody's ever uh, offered to take him there. So this morning, actually, a message came from the Polisario representative to Australia that the authorities are happy to extend an invitation to meet the uh, importers, the executive officers of each of the two New Zealand companies that uh, deal with this phosphate, and he would, uh, they would take them to the Sahrawi refugees to see for themselves the circumstances in which they are living and the precarious life that they have because of the failure to resolve the question at the United Nations.
1: Do you have the figures of how long Morocco has been taking this phosphate from Western Sahara. The tonnage or approximate tonnage and what that's worth would have been worth for the people of Western Sahara over that time?
5: That has been documented, but it's, I'm afraid not to say, not in my head. I can, but it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money because it's the whole trade is worth 200 million per annum. There hasn't been much interruption. Since the ceasefire, I think during the war, the 14-year war between 1975 and 1991, at one stage the uh, conveyor belt was damaged in the war and production was, was interrupted. But since then, since 1991, it's been continuing and Spain was remained a part owner of this mine as a former colonial power and it was only around about 2000 and oh quite recent you know 2005 or something like that that morocco took over full ownership of the mine as we say they, in our view they don't actually own it but they uh, have been subsuming it into the OCP, the Office Gérifien des Phosphates, the Moroccan phosphate company, and they've been operating the mine.
1: And how many other countries are they exporting it to, apart from Australia and New Zealand?
5: I'm sorry, again, I haven't got that figure in my head, but maybe somewhere between a dozen and 20, I would say.
1: So it is a very lucrative business.
5: It is, it is, yes.
1: Well, we can hope that um, things happen on the 19th, is it?
5: The uh, 18th. 18th, 18th all right. Happening. It'll be, yes, very interesting to see what happens. And we don't actually know the formal position as, as to whether Morocco is still the official owner of the cargo or if ownership transferred once it was loaded onto the ship to balance. But that is something for them to sort out between themselves and they are both keen to present what they see as their side of the story to the South African court.
1: And we'll be following that up after the 18th of May. That was Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. On the program last week, human rights activist Brian Sinaretna talked about the cosy relationship between the former UN Security Council head Ban Ki-moon and the former president of Sri Lanka, Rajapaksa. Now another part of the UN, the UN Human Rights Council, and results of a meeting which was held in March. Brian again.
0: From 2012, they've been having meetings, and every time Sri Lanka has to present what is going on, uh, they ask for an extension. The 2009 meeting was outrageous. This was just a week after the massacre of uh, some 60,000 Tamil civilians, and the whole world knew about it. And Sri Lanka had sponsored um, or insisted on having a special session on Sri Lanka at the UN Human Rights Council, just a week after the slaughter, and at that session, Sri Lanka lied to the extent that all the, the people who attended the session actually commended Sri Lanka for doing what it did. It, it, it was just outrageous. Human Rights Watch uh, reported uh, the title was Sri Lanka, UN Human Rights Council Fails Victims. Member States Ignore Need for Inquiry into Wartime Atrocities. Amnesty International said exactly the same thing. Now, after all that, that was in 2009. In 2012, they had a meeting and Sri Lanka had to explain what it was doing in terms of promoting reconciliation, accountability and human rights. They didn't do it, but asked for another extension the following year, 2012, th- 13, 14 and 15. In 15, they were given two more years to 17. That was this March. And I think the whole world expected their council to do something about it. And what happened? When they arrived in uh, March 2017, they asked for another two year extension until 2019. I have actually said that the Sri Lanka uh, issue, uh, what they're hoping would happen, or what Sri Lanka is hoping would happen, is that the world will forget about it and the whole thing will just sort of disappear. I have written this large article that the Human Rights Council in Geneva is becoming a joke.
1: Can I just read to you what they committed to in 2015? Yeah. Colombo will be able to satisfactorily fulfil all the commitments it voluntarily undertook to fulfil including the proposal to establish a Commission for Truth, Justice, Reconciliation and Non-Recurrence, establish an Office of Missing Persons and an Office for Reparations, particularly in a Sri Lankan judicial mechanism of the Commonwealth and other foreign judges, trial and punishment of those responsible for crimes, undertake a review of the Public Security Ordinance Act, and to review and repeal the Prevention of Terrorism Act, release publicly previous presidential commission reports, take constitutional measures for a political settlement, including devolution of political authority. That's a long list there. Yeah. You're saying they did nothing?
0: They did nothing. You see, uh, all of this applies. Uh, they've set up various commissions of inquiry, which functioned in Colombo in the. In Sri Lankan south, with my people, there nothing, nothing happens in the north and the east where the Tamils live, you see. That area is actually not under Sri Lanka. It's under the Sri Lankan armed forces. It's a police state on a military state. Nothing has happened. The change from the dreadful uh, Rajapaksa regime to the current Sri regime has only been a name change. And the Tamils in the uh, north and the east, Incidentally, they are the people who are jumping into boats and coming to Australia simply because they can't live there. It is not a livable situation. And all these commissions and everything that has happened, they, nothing has happened in the Tamil North and the East. That's where the problem is, and that's why I, what I hoped that would be addressed, especially since uh, a group called the Tamil Civil Society. Uh, sent a long, comprehensive uh, list of the problems they are facing, and that was just tossed in the, in the dustbin.
1: Can you describe that list?
0: Uh, they just said, look, the people have got no food, they don't have drugs, their lands are gone, The lands are all confiscated and used by the armed forces. They've been, uh, the people uh, who have been fishing have been taken from the coast and relocated 10 miles, that's 20 kilometers inland. Now, there are no sea there. Now, if they're, they're, they're not going to carry a boat for 20 kilometers every day to fish and come back. In any case, they are not even allowed to fish uh, except between 10 and 11 or something in the morning, because single-east fishermen from the south are being brought and installed on the coast uh, and encouraged by the government who give them all the facilities to do so. So the Tamils cannot do any agriculture because they've lost their lands, they cannot do any fishing because they've been relocated from the coast, they, are, they got no employment, and literally they are. It's a slow death. I've called it slow genocide. I mean, people say that I shouldn't use the word genocide, but unfortunately that is what the word genocide means, which is a destruction of in whole or in part of a national, ethnic, uh, religious, cultural, or other group. And in this case, that part is the part that lives in the north and the east. And uh, the supporters of the government say, well, the Tamils in the south are doing well. I said, I challenge that. But that's not the issue. The issue is that the Tamils in the north and the east are gradually disappearing. I mean, they are dying who stop for lack of drugs, lack of uh, work, and uh, lack of food. This, this is just, I mean, I've told them that if they think that the answer is going to come from the UN Human Rights Council, they better forget about it. I think the answer has got to, be come, uh, to come from a nonviolent protest organized by the Tamil people in the north and the east.
1: And that is happening?
0: Well, there was a protest on when was it? uh, In in September last year when some 15,000 people from all over the north and the east uh, collected in Jaffna and brought Jaffna, which is in the north, the main city in the north to a halt. Uh, I said, well, that's the sort of thing that will work if anything does. Now the worst News was that on the day, the very day that the motion was passed in Geneva, the President of Sri Lanka appointed uh, Major General Shavendra Silva as the chief of the uh, legislator of uh, the armed forces. Now, Shavendra Silva is an interesting character. He was the person who was in charge of the armed forces when they dropped bombs and decimated the north and the east. He was the man who accepted the uh, Tamil Tiger political uh, leaders who came to surrender. He shook their hands, and a couple of hours later their bodies were found in a grave. He is probably the person with the greatest case to answer, as Justice Navani Zampille, the former U.N. human rights councillor in Geneva said, he said, this is a man who has to have a case to answer. And to appoint this man as the, whatever they call it, in charge of the army, is I think a slap in the face to all of us, and certainly to the victims who are waiting for justice in the north and the east of Sri Lanka.
1: And that's tireless human rights activist, Dr Brian Simaratna. Stop failing our kids. The juvenile justice system is a racist disgrace. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is launching a campaign to highlight factors including poverty, homelessness, loss of culture and racist over policing as key contributors to youth incarceration in Victoria. The campaign kicks off with a week of action starting on the steps of State Parliament on Thursday the 25th of May at 12.30. Be there. For more information including campaign details go to isja-melbourne.com. Let's hold the Andrews government to account and halt the law and order race to The bottom. ISJA Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. The New Farm website boasts that it is one of the largest manufacturers of crop protection in Australia with their significant formulation development focused on designing products for Australian conditions. A little further on the homepage, New Farm Limited provides a 24-hour emergency number if there is a suspected poisoning or exposure to chemicals. And it is the latter that has concerned residents of Faulkner for many years and that concern has increased due to a proposed development of the former site of the chemical company which could release deadly toxins into the air and the nearby creek. Concerned residents and environmentalists, a local councillor, have convened a public meeting for this Thursday at 7pm at the Faulkner Senior Citizen Centre. Yesterday I spoke with one of those concerned citizens, Brian Snowden, and we began discussing how a toxic industry was allowed to operate in a mainly residential area back in the 1950s.
6: We don't know how they came to be there in the first place. When my parents and I moved into Faulkner, I was a child of nine, in 1957, there was already one factory down near the creek, down near the Merry Creek in McBride Street, Faulkner, which is off the highway at the end of Faulkner, which borders the Merry Creek. That old factory was a ferrous metal factory. It was called Holloway's Foundry. It was all that existed, other than that existed behind that was a a market gardener, a joiner who was building door frames and window frames for all the houses that were being built because Faulkner had been opened up, it had been sheep farm. It was the outer limits of Melbourne in those days, in the northern suburbs, and it was sheep farm and it had been opened up to the government for war service homes and later for... Housing Commission homes, but mostly it was War Service homes at that point. It was mostly open paddocks, no sewer, dirt roads, open drains. At some point, obviously, some scout for a new farm, which is a subsidiary of Monsanto, no matter what they tell you. Obviously, scouted out. There was a property for sale that the Holloway people had probably either their business wasn't doing good or they were retiring or whatever, they turned the factory over to New Farm. We were told initially, or the residents were, that that New Farm was making hairspray. Hairspray was big in the 60s, if you remember. It wasn't until some years later when they started letting off toxic fumes into the air, peeling paint off houses, all the plants were dying, people were feeling nauseous, sick. There was a terrible stench over the suburb that people started to realise something's amiss here.
1: I think we need to begin by pointing out that the reason that you have so much information is that your mother was part of a residence action group way back then?
6: Yes, that's correct. The Faulkner Broadmeadows Progress Association.
1: And she kept all her records? She
6: kept all the records, or most of them anyway, including all the correspondence, this weighty Document which is the audit from the clean up when it was eventually done. She kept all the records. The only one I can't find is the one on all the medical problems. There was a document which I foolishly loaned to someone at some point and never got back, and that outlined all the cancer clusters that were prevalent around the suburb later. We also know that just about everyone who worked in the, that new farm factory died of one form of cancer or another.
1: And was it the local people who worked in the factory?
6: Some local people, although not from our street and a little bit further afield mostly, but some people in the Faulkner suburb did. And then when New Farm left Faulkner and moved to wherever they moved to, I've forgotten now, somewhere over in Broadmeadows, I think, or somewhere, they actually used to bus their workers from Faulkner, the ones who did work for them from Faulkner, over to the new plant. And they had problems too. They ended up. It was serious health issues.
1: Talk about pollution of the the creek, because it's not far from the creek either, is it? It's at
6: virtually at the closest point to the creek along that whole area, that whole strip. New Farm. One could call them criminals. They were criminal. Their actions were criminal. They had an open drain from a, a sinkhole that they'd built towards the rear of one end of the factory which literally had an open drain that ran into the creek ran all their effluent and all their off off you know whatever they were they were spilling out into the creek and they defoliated the whole of the area behind the factory as well for about half a kilometer or more and also what they didn't run into the creek they ran into the sewer
1: just explain what they were actually doing there what were they making
6: they were manufacturing between about 1957 and 1981 these chemicals: dioxins, DDT, toluene-based emulsifier concentrate, phenoacetic acid herbicides, 2,4D, 2,4,5T esters, dichlorophenol and trichlorophenol, arsenic-based sheep dip. There were benzene offshoots and residues found. On the site when it was being cleaned up, as well.
1: I would imagine it should have had, a, or would have had, a, a special permit to produce things like that in a residential area.
6: Nobody knew. Nobody knew, or if, you, if they knew, they they turned a blind eye. After all, the ex premier of Victoria, Henry Balty, was on the board of New Farm.
1: But people must have noticed the creek being denuded. Oh yes.
6: Oh yes. We swam in that creek as as children. It was pristine. There was bird life. There were fish. There was all manner of life down there, and, you know, it was clean. And over time, it became increasingly polluted, and uh, even kids used to play behind the factory where the runoff was happening, and they got covered in some of this stuff.
1: When did the sicknesses start?
6: Pretty early in the piece, and certainly by the the, uh, 1970s. Things started to become evident that there were serious problems with this this place. Quite apart from the stench that it gave off and the toxic plumes it sent into the air, yeah, people be- started to have breathing problems, skin irritation problems. And then from there, things snowballed and other worse conditions started happening with with people and clusters of people, not just in McBride Street but in the street behind, which is Percy Street, the street behind that, which is James Street, and all the way to Bruce Street, which is 3rd Street up, and either side of those streets.
1: And was this factory working 24 hours a day? Pretty,
6: Pretty much 24 hours a day for a fair bit of its time, yes. These chemicals are so toxic, you know, they're highly carcinogenic and there were heavy traces of them found saturated on the new farm site after the the company moved out and it moved out under sufferance from the residents and it took another 18 years before the residents could get anyone to look at the place and do a clean up. In the meantime, it had been sold into other private hands. Other people had tried to use the place and found that it was Mitchell's brushes were the next owners of the place they filled the place with jute for for brushes it all went off they couldn't use it that had to be cleaned out and then they sold it on to a a, a guy who was a junkyard dog he had a junk in there he had a junkyard down in North Coburg and he took it on and even he couldn't use it. it the place was just the whole of the the structure of the factory was coated in residue it was just a toxic mess quite apart from what seeped into the ground.
1: Talk about the, the residents group, the, the action group that worked over all those years. You've got the records of how they operated. Who did they go to, what did they try and do, and who knocked them back all the time?
6: They didn't have the internet like we have, so it took forever. It was all done writing letters to various or what were thought to be the responsible people, responsible authorities, the state government, ministers, the EPA, local councillors. They networked with other people in other areas, other other parts of Melbourne, who were subject to the same sorts of problems, particularly that was happening down in um, past Oakley there, and also in other areas like Altona, where all the oil refineries were, and Dow Chemicals doing pretty much the same thing. And by the way, Dow Chemicals is currently... The old Dow Chemicals site is now currently, as we speak, being cleaned up by the Eltona Council. And Dow Chemicals had to be dragged screaming and yelling to the party to clean it up. That clean-up, I believe, is a substantial clean-up. It's costing lots and lots of money to do it. It's being done properly. The Faulkner site, they did... The worst parts of it, which probably was about a third of the property, the, the larger property because it's now been divided in two, they probably did about a third of it in the worst parts and I think they found such toxicity they threw their hands in the air and decided they'd just put a clay cap over the top of it that wasn't to be touched.
1: What did they do with the material that they did dig out?
6: That was taken over to somewhere in the western suburbs where it was, I believe, buried probably in an old quarry or something like that. The uh, factory itself was cleaned on site, demolished and cleaned on site by men in full-body suits and masks. I don't know what happened to the residues of the cleaning process. It probably just went into the soil. It was cleaned then it was shipped off to a metal recycler and the metal was recycled. It was a metal factory in a metal frame and a metal and corrugated iron cladding, et cetera, et cetera, and it was full of asbestos as well.
1: And what happened to the drains?
6: The drains were just covered up. Pits? The pits were cleaned out on site. Nothing was ever cleaned behind the factory. Nothing was ever done about the area behind the factory which butted onto the creek, and to this day... Nothing's ever been done there and it, nothing grows there. It's still bare. The Merry Creek Association have planted or attempted to plant trees and shrubs and things there in the past. Nothing grows.
1: Do they have underground tanks as well?
6: They had underground tanks Did on site. Did they take them out? Yep. They were taken out.
1: you got no idea what happened to them?
6: No idea. The EPA is the one to answer those questions.
1: Yeah, have you tried that one?
6: We've tried that one. There's a developer at present trying to redevelop this site and put two warehouses on it. He happens to be a fellow who has a series of factories up further at 106 McBride Street. This is 102 we're talking about, 100 and 102, but 102 principally is where the development is. That factory that, or series of factories he owns is a food factory. He wants to redevelop this site for his food factory.
1: All right. Well, who's allowing him to do it?
6: No-one's allowing him to do it yet. He has put an application in which cannot be refused. Anyone can put a permit into a council and then the planning department in a council reviews that. That's the process. And there is a an application sheet goes up on the front of the premises so that anyone in close proximity knows there is a proposed development and they can either agree with it or put in objections. Well, the... Council was supposed to send out letters as under their charter. They're supposed to send letters to the residents. One person got a letter when we had a meeting with them. They said they sent 20. They didn't send 20. They sent one. Then they said they would resend them. Nobody's received another letter. But anyway, when the permit was supposed to go up on the fence on the due date, because you've got a window of time between when the permit goes in and when objections are uh, allowed to be made, I think it's 10 days or something, the permit hadn't gone up. So we contacted the council, the permit went up. The only reason we knew about this was because someone got a letter. So the permit went up and it was undated, so we couldn't tell when the cut-off date was for objections. So we got back to the council and lo and behold, the next day, oh, yes, there was a date put on it. So then we went back... Because I have been the custodian of all the documentation about this place, both my mother and father were heavily involved in this issue way back, I had all the documentation. So I letterboxed everyone around the area and we started writing objections. And uh, I wrote a seven-page objection to the council stating everything chapter and verse, put the wind up the council, I think, a little bit well, they say they were aware of the problem, but there's a lot of amnesia, there's a lot of churn in councils, particularly the Moreland Council. There's a lot of people coming and going with no knowledge of this. In fact, even the head of the planning department said she thought there was never this was never a toxic site. And she's made other pronouncements since, too, about the, the building on there. She says that uh, it's okay, the clay cap won't be pierced. These warehouse shells won't require footings. This is from a woman who is supposed to be head of a planning department. She doesn't no idea of how a building is actually built.
1: What's the cap?
6: The cap is supposed to be a clay cap. It was supposed to have been about a metre thick. In most places, it's around about 0.30 thick, so 30 centimetres, not very thick. The present owner has already dug up the place once before, illegally, and put down a concrete slab. That wasn't very long ago.
1: And what were the repercussions of that?
6: None. He just got stopped, that's all. He was never fined. In the original document of an audit, the environmental cleanup audit, there's a stipulation that the clay cap is not to be touched and that if it is breached, there's a fine of $20,000 in 1990 terms that is to be applied to any breach. None of that's ever been done. Next door, there's the property. The property was divided in two, so that 100 McBride Street is also toxic. That's in better condition, but that had a section towards the back northern corner of it where the worst contamination was. That's where a, a sink drain was. That owner put an illegal shed on that area, another illegal shed. That owner was pinged by residents with the council. Again, no fines, just a slap on the wrist, and you either pull it down or you pay us a, a permit fee. So, of course, they paid a permit fee, and they just this is something that just continues on and on. All these misdemeanours just get blindsided, looked, overlooked, put on the back burner, call it what you will.
1: You're listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'm speaking with Brian Snowden, a concerned citizen from Faulkner, a northern suburb of Melbourne, and that concern is a proposed development of the former site of the chemical company New Farm. Talk a bit more about the EPA and the role that they have or haven't done in, in this circumstance.
6: Way back when the audit was first done, the EPA was kicking and screaming about their lack of process. And it was Greenpeace who exposed them back then. There's an article from The Sun that talks all about that. As it turns out, the Greenpeace were absolutely right. And the EPA, who were deniers at that point, a bit like climate deniers are these days, you know climate change deniers and i think they took that position and i don't think anything's changed the epa actually doesn't do anything they're just a body so they either contract some company who specializes in this or a qualified toxicologist who does all the work well the problem is with this permit is yes that on superficially seems to have been done. The owner has contracted a toxicologist, someone who was accredited by the EPA to do tests, but the tests look totally superficial and mostly in the document of permit that was submitted with this guy's name and signature to it. He just looks like he's piggybacked off the previous audits that were done, and there were two done. The second one was a bit dicey too. So it's looking like, and we can't get the details of this audit from the EPA, it's looking like the EPA will just simply take his word for it, that he did a proper thing, did a proper audit, and did proper tests. So we put in a series of questions via our, the local Moorland leader asking the EPA when did they... Because they're saying, I got onto the EPA very quickly in the piece. I got onto the head of the... Environmental, what's her title? It doesn't matter. She, she's head of, of of all toxic spills and all of all the things that affect the environment. Joanne Misson, her name is. Um, she's at head office, which is in Victoria Street in the city, just near the Victoria Market. And she more or less, I, I made her aware of it. She got back to me. She, yes, she. they do have this document online, but it had gone under the radar. So she handballed it to a regional a regional office which is supposed to deal with, you know, these sort of, sort of problems in our area. Well, the Moorland Leader, thank you very much, Moreland Leader got on to them and the person responsible there and asked them for information and they said, oh, we'll be giving information to the council by the end of the month. In other words, we don't know what the toxicolo- new toxicology report says or how thorough it has has been done, we know nothing. So I put in questions. Who conducted the so-called testing on the site? Was it the EPA or one of their personnel, or was it a contractor of the EPA? When was the audit done? How deep did they dig? Where on the site did they dig? How many test samples did they take? How large are the test samples? Who did they take the test samples to? Was it an e p a laboratory? was it attached to a university? Was it a private laboratory? What are their accreditation for doing such work what's their accreditation um, What are their findings? No one's come back to us yet no, How one. long ago no was one's that? come back to the paper either. You know it's the same old amnesia. Or, oh, we're the responsible body, you don't need to know. This is a serious, serious problem.
1: Is the paper following it up?
6: It is, as far as I know, yes.
1: Tell me what Greenpeace did. Did they do a toxicology audit? or They, they, a...
6: they did, back in the days, they had people on board. These days, Greenpeace are not interested in this sort of thing. They're more into climate change. That's their big thing, the climate change issues. We've tried to contact them and find the relative people. All the relative people are probably not even alive anymore. We've tried to contact them to get into their database so far unsuccessfully. My local member, Sue Bolton, has been doing that.
1: When did they do their test?
6: This was back in the early 1990s or late 1980s where they raided... They literally had to raid the sites, and they did both the site that was at Faulkner and the the other site that was over Broad Meadows Way or Doveton or wherever it was, and they took samples and then they confronted the the the, the authorities that be with their findings and then the naysayers appeared, and then they were just proved that you know it, it, the problem got so big in fact it got toxic uh, and they couldn 't avoid paying attention to the problem. And we're hoping that's what happens this time. You know, we're trying to up the ante because we have to. We've got no choice. Otherwise, we just run into brick walls with bureaucratic gobbledygook, you know, weasel words with so-called statute that has to be followed, et cetera, et cetera. And in the meantime, nobody gets any answers.
1: There must be a great concern, though, if this does go ahead and they bring in earth-moving machinery into that site and start digging up or drawing piles down to bedrock or whatever, what's going to happen then? There's
6: no bedrock. There's no bedrock. It's Merry Creek clay, which is thick black clay, which holds everything. And beneath that, that whole area is volcanic. So there's actually a floating population of volcanic rocks that passes through and around and up and down, and it's always been thus. Very porous. What will happen is that quite possibly, if they dig deep enough, we suspect, because that's what happened when they did the illegal concrete pad, the toxic soil will be exposed to the air again. The fumes will rise, as they did back then. The stench covered the the suburb once more. That will happen. So people will, will be subject to these volatile fumes that we think are still in the soil from the chemical and also anyone working on that site any worker is going to be exposed to this that happened last time the workers got sick when they dug up the this clay cap and down into the soil to put in the concrete pad they got sick the guy on the grader and the guy on the, the front end loader got ill
1: and those people that might be working on the site like that might not necessarily know the history of the place
6: I would have suspect they wouldn't be told at all that's a supposition on my part. I maybe shouldn't say that, but one would hope if this goes through, and I, for the life of me, hope it doesn't and can't see why it should, without a proper clean-up. The residents are not against development as such. What we're against is illegal development, and no development on that site can be undertaken without a complete and thorough audit followed by a complete and thorough clean-up if the audit is found to be problematic.
1: You've got a public meeting on Thursday at the Faulkner Senior Citizens Centre. That's correct. Talk about the people you've invited to speak on that night.
6: We have Harry Van Morse. He'll be the first speaker. He's from the Western Region Environmental Centre. Harry's been around for a very, very long time. And was aware of this problem, knew about this problem when this problem first hit, you know, became a problem for everybody. Harry is a well-reasoned, well-educated, well-informed fellow who's fought many a campaign on environmental issues. He's one of the few people left who does this sort of work. The next speaker is Percy Fellay, who... It's the Health and Safety Officer for the Australian Workers' Union, and that was the union that covered all the workers who used to work there. The Australian Workers' Union have just handed down a large report on toxicology with men employed by companies and by councils who go around spraying nature strips, etc., etc., and have been exposed to chemicals, ungloved, unmasked, and all the problem, the health problems. So they've just about to hand down a very big report on all the health... It's a state report on all the health problems that have occurred with those people. So he's a very good man to have talking. I'll be talking, just filling in everyone on the history, and then Sue Bolton, our local council member, very conscientious, very concerned council member, will be talking as well, and we'll have a chair. The residents of Faulkner we have been made well aware of this problem. Many of them remember the problems. They've got long memories like us all. We've been letterboxing. We've had a petition going. I was out on Saturday morning at the local shopping centre. We had two shopping centres where we, we were raising consciousness and getting a petition signed. We're ready to do what we can to take this forward. We had a few naysayers on Saturday. I think some of the members of the family of the of the developer confronted us, wouldn't say who they were. I'm expecting we might have some disruptors at this meeting. I hope not. I hope it's civil and um, ordered and informative. And I hope anyone out there who has an interest in this subject will see fit to attend as well, not just the residents.
1: And is Sue the only councillor who's taking an interest in this
6: she's the only councillor who's doing anything nearly half the council voted against the the proposal she put up at the last council meeting about how the council should go about considering this application like you know a full audit from the epa etc etc three or four councillors voted against her proposals including the mayor who's quite right wing from what i can understand the Greens were arming and aring, but I think they eventually voted with Sue. One of the Labor members abstained, and I think the other Labor member may have voted against as well.
1: You didn't invite anyone from the planning department the, the, to come? The head
6: of the planning department was at the meeting, and she, that was when she made the public statement that Warehouses don't need footings in order to put up walls and roofs.
1: Are you inviting her again this time?
6: We've invited all of the councillors and anyone in the planning department to come to the meeting.
1: Well, you're going to go, if you do go down, you're going to go down with a fight, aren't you? We,
6: we're not going to go down and we're going down and we're going up with a fight.
1: Just give the d- details of where it is for people who might not know where the Faulkner Senior Citizens Centre is.
6: Faulkner Senior Citizens is in Dukes Road. Orkner. near the uh, leisure centre, swimming pool, library. Dukes Road is north of the cemetery gates, heading north on Sydney Road or the Hume Highway. It's a divided highway there. You turn right off the highway into Dukes Road. It's clearly marked. I think it's you'll see the traffic lights are after the cemetery gates. Uh, Lynch Road, Major Road, then Dukes Road. Dukes Road, you go about... Two thirds of the way down the road past the shopping centre and you'll see on your right hand side a sort of park area and the leisure centre and there's a driveway to get into the the citizens uh, community hall which is next attached to the library and it's right next to the Faulkner High School or Faulkner College or whatever it's called now.
1: There might be some people thinking, well, it's not in my backyard, but you never know when it is going to be in your backyard, do you?
6: It's in everyone's backyard. There are countless, countless toxic sites littered around Melbourne. They are being eyed off by developers because they can be purchased cheaply and because of the cluster development that's happening everywhere in Melbourne at the present time, they're sought after because they're land that people want to use for housing now all of those sites and and I repeat there are many dotted around Melbourne in the west especially in the western suburbs and in suburbs like Oakley Way where down the Nepean Highway where there was there were also great clusters of, of um, industrial activity these sites apparently from an article I read they are sought by mostly by overseas interests who are wanting to make money in our housing market
1: and they'd have no idea whatsoever of what they were getting in for
6: the article i read is saying that these can these sites can be rehabilitated can be remediated that it would, will cost money and, and that it's it's desirable to remediate them i agree it's desirable to remediate them if they can remediate them to the point where housing can be built on them okay but they have to be remediated Maribyrnong Council are are a standout in this because they had the munitions factory over there, which was huge. Now, they had to go through and clean up all of that. There were munitions lying about unexploded there was gunpowder there were test sites there were there was live ammunition as there was in the uh, rifle range that used to exist over in Williamstown when they cleaned that up they found all sorts of things that shouldn't have been there well the Maribyrnong council actually did a thorough and complete job but most of that land was turned over for public use after it was cleaned out and remediated not for housing or for more industry. Some councils just don't learn their lessons. The other site, of course, in close proximity to that area is the old Kodak factory in North North Coburg. That is putrid. They're wanting to put 6,000 homes on there.
1: Well, they're already there, aren't they? They're in
6: trouble. They've got trouble already. So these sites are everywhere. It can affect everyone and does affect everyone. And the more people make themselves aware... Of the problems, the more the real people who are responsible for these will be brought to account and made to account for their actions. Just in absolute conclusion, I'd like to quote, every right requires a correlative duty bearer.
1: And that was Brian Snowden, a a local resident of McBride Street in Faulkner. And if you'd like to go to that public meeting... It's this Thursday evening, it's 7 o'clock, 6.30 for 7 o'clock, it's at the Faulkner Senior Citizens Centre at number 77 Dukes Road in Faulkner, and as Brian said, there will be speakers from the Western Suburbs Environmental Centre, the AWU Health and Safety Officer, Sue Bolton, the Moreland City Council and also Brian. So that's Thursday the 11th of May, six thirty for 7pm at the Faulkner Senior Citizen Centre, 77 Dukes Road in Faulkner. That's all for me today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.